Did you know we're racing toward a day when all wrongs and all matters of injustice will be perfectly leveled and made right? Today on Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville, message number three in our series about the glorious second coming of Jesus. The second coming will fulfill all the matters of fairness and justice that are so deeply ingrained in us. As a researcher, I've come across rare cases where justice is meted out, but for every case that's handled fairly, it feels like there's dozens more where justice does not occur and victims suffer away in silence. Suffering, injustice, and Christianity seem to go together like a three-legged stool, but as I like to say, it's not the end of the story. We're going to learn more about the glorious day when all suffering and injustice will be made right. Here's Pastor John with part one of the message, The Comfort of Christ's Just Judgment. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's read verses 5 through 10 together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 5 through 10. And so let's hear the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Paul writes this, beginning in verse 5. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that, or so that, you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, that is, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Um, most adults who have children have performed playground duty. How many of you have ever performed playground duty, right? It's quite fun. I'm still doing it with Stuart, so we're still on the playground after about two decades. <laughs> um, But adults who have performed playground duty have heard the familiar protest that comes from children. That's not fair, right? Um, This cry for fairness by a child on the playground demonstrates that there is an innate sense for the desire for rightness that all humans possess. And so it's not only from children that we hear this cry for fairness. Let me give you a couple of examples in our culture. News cable companies claim to be, quote, fair and balanced, right? We hear politicians calling for fairness all the time. Um, In the recent uh, presidential campaign, this isn't a plug, this is an illustration, In the recent presidential campaign, Bernie Sanders captivated and mobilized a huge band of the electorate with his, quote, call for fairness, 
At one of his rallies, he boiled down his message to, quote, America should be a society based on justice, based on equality, based on fairness, end quote. So from the child's protest on the playground to news cable network slogans to the politician's slick marketing campaign, all these illustrate in our culture how pervasive is the desire in humans for a just approach to life. For Christians, how we respond to questions of injustice and lack of fairness is not only a test of our human relationships, but it's also a test of our relationship to God. And here's why. Because when Christians suffer, they are sometimes tempted to question the justice of God in the face of great injustice. Let me give you an example, just one example. There, there are thousands that abound, but here's one for us. On October the 9th, 2011, uh, Coptic Christians gathered in Cairo, Egypt, to protest the destruction of one of their churches. And tragically, this gathering took a deadly turn and resulted in the killing of 24 innocent people and the wounding of over 200 others. So in response to this horrific, uh, unjust event, one of the protesters was interviewed by the media, and I want you to listen to his interview. He said, quote, every time there is an incident, a church burned or attacked, nothing happens about it. No one is charged, no one is arrested, and this was bothering my father because he thought it was not fair. He believed some people had to pay for what they had done to the churches and to the Christians in Egypt. Listen carefully to this person who was experiencing persecution. Listen carefully. Nothing happens. It was not fair. Some people had to pay for what they have done. So often in this life, it doesn't seem right and fair that a just God can allow his people to suffer so much injustice. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is lamenting over the prosperity of the wicked. He's lamenting over their prosperity to such a great degree that he confesses and at the beginning of the psalm that his feet had nearly slipped. He had just about said, just give, it, just give up. It appears that no punishment, no justice awaits evildoers, he, he laments, and that there's no reward for the righteous. And so consequently, throughout the church's history, there's been this longing, this innate desire in God's people for the judge of all the earth to come set aright the enormous injustices that now prevail in our world. Paul had such questions in mind as he wrote to the Thessalonians. He wrote First and Second Thessalonians to a church plant that was filled with young believers who were facing persecution for their faith. 
In fact, we learned last week from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, that from the very beginning of their initial acceptance of the gospel, they immediately began to be persecuted and face afflictions and unjust actions towards them for their faith. And so consequently, because of this persecution, some of these Thessalonian believers were troubled with questions, listen, over the justice of God. They were struggling in their mind over the justness, the just, the justice, the righteousness of God. Now, as I told you last week, in chapter 2, Paul shows us that false teachers had come into the church, and they were telling these young believers that the day of the Lord had come. So many of these young believers were troubled, thinking the day of the Lord had already come. And because their experience of persecution uh, was occurring, it contradicted the fact that Jesus had already come. So some of them were troubled with this. If Christ has come, why are we still suffering? If Christ has come, how can a just God still allow his people to suffer injustice and unjust persecutions and afflictions? Every time there's an incident Nothing happens about it. No one is charged. No one is arrested. This is not fair. If God is just, how can he allow us here in Thessalonica to continue suffering this type of injustice? Someone has to pay for this. And so these Thessalonians began to question the justice of God because the persecution of God's people should not continue if the Lord had come back. And so Paul, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, writes to, to these young, persecuted believers in the faith, he writes to them to remove any question of doubt concerning the justice of God. He writes, as I said, to comfort them. In short, you're going to see this morning that Paul answers the question, does God deal justly with those who are afflicted and with those who afflict? And his answer is absolutely yes, he does. Verses 3 to 10 in chapter 1 is one long, uninterrupted sentence. And in this very complex sentence, Paul is arguing that God is just in the face of believers' suffering. And specifically, what you're going to see this morning in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, is that Paul reveals that Jesus' second coming results in two very different just outcomes. Jesus' second coming results in two very different just outcomes. Namely, the first outcome is retribution or vengeance for those who persecute the church, and it is relief or vindication for those who are persecuted. And even though such knowledge would not immediately lessen the Thessalonians' present suffering, and even though such knowledge may not lessen your current suffering here today, such knowledge is intended to comfort these young suffering believers and to comfort us by reassuring us that God is just, that the ultimate outcome at the end of history is the justice of God given both to persecutors as well as those who are persecuted. 
And so we'll begin by looking at the first outcome of Christ's second coming for persecuting unbelievers. Let's read verses 6 and 8 through 10. Look at verse 6 again. Paul says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Look at verse 8. Well, the end of verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that's his second coming. He's revealed in flaming fire, look, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. That day is the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Jesus is the culmination of redemptive history. It brings to consummation all of God's saving purposes throughout the history of the world. And so we're mindful that here in our church that we confess the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe that Christ, quote, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so it will be, Paul says, on this day that no lingering doubts will remain concerning the justice of God and how God has dealt with mankind. Now, it's a very significant feature that I want you to keep in mind as we go through this passage this morning is I want you to note how Paul understands Jesus' return. Paul understands the second coming of Jesus to be a fulfillment of Old Testament judgment texts where the Old Testament speaks of Yahweh the Lord as the one who comes to carry out judgment on people. First and Second Thessalonians, as I told you, were the, were the earliest of Paul's letters along with Galatians. And so it gives us insight to see how the early church, the first century church, represented by Paul, understood that the risen, ascended Jesus who is returning is Yahweh of the Old Testament. In verses 5 and 6, look what Paul says. He speaks of God's judgment twice. Then in verses 7 through 10, look what Paul does. He says, it is Christ himself who will carry out God's judgment. This is consistent with what Jesus taught us in the Gospels. In John chapter 5, verses 20 and 27, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That is the allusion to Daniel 7, where Daniel sees the conquering Son of Man, God, coming to crush the kingdoms of this world. That's Jesus. And so Paul is arguing in this letter that when Christ returns, it is God, it is Yahweh who is returning to bring judgment, and he brings with him a great reversal. For unbelievers, Christ's second coming will be Yahweh, Jesus, and it will be a day of judgment. 
Paul has in mind, in the back of his mind, several Old Testament texts. One of the Old Testament texts that he has in the back of his mind as he writes on the second coming of Christ in relationship to unbelievers is Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah says that on the day of the Lord, quote, people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. The day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, Paul says, is a day full of terror for those who afflict God's people. The prophet Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord as the day when Yahweh judges his enemies. I want you to listen to chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 18, which are all applied to Jesus here. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven... He will fulfill and consummate Zephaniah's prophecy. And Zephaniah says, The great day of the Lord Yahweh is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. It is a day of wrath, a day of distress, a day of anguish, a day of ruin, a day of devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's what Paul is writing here. So let's... Let's see what Paul is describing about Christ's second coming. The whole emphasis that Paul gives here is on the retributive justice of God. It is payback time. And so look how Paul describes Jesus and his retributive justice on those who persecute the church. Look at verse 6. God considers it just to repay, that's retributive justice, payday, payback time. To repay with affliction those who afflict you. So notice in verse 4, the word afflictions. Verse 6, afflictions curse twice. Verse 7, it occurs again. Paul says that the second coming of Christ will come as an unexpected and frightening turn of events for those who persecute God's people. He argues that it belongs to the just nature of God. God considers it just because he is just. To pay back with affliction those who afflict, in verse 6, and to give relief to those who are afflicted. We'll come back to that. But the great truth that Paul is underscoring for us is this is that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a second coming, he will consider it just to pay back. Because God is just, Paul says he will set aright all of the injustices against his people. Because God is just, he considers it just to repay evildoers exactly what they have cashed in on. 
Bible teachers, again, point out that Paul has in mind here Isaiah chapter 66, Jesus fulfilling this passage, specifically verses 4 through 6. Because in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Old Testament, this passage in Isaiah uses the verb payback three times in reference to Yahweh. And it says that Yahweh will come, quote, listen, rendering recompense to his enemies. And so again, Paul is telling us that Jesus is Yahweh revealed in his second coming, rendering just recompense on those who persecute his church. This second coming of Jesus is God himself coming in judgment. It will be payback time. It will be payday. It will be a just retribution. And so Paul is comforting. He's assuring these suffering believers that their persecutors will reap exactly what they have sown. Why is it important for us to remember this and to understand this? And how does it give us comfort? Here's, here's why. The great temptation that we face when we suffer unjustly is to want to strike back. One of the great temptations that you face as a pastor is when you get unjustly represented in public about your church, speaking from experience, and you want to get back because you know it's not true. It's important to remember that when we suffer unjustly, we don't want to strike back because we're not just We want to make those who afflict us pay. We're like the Christian protesting in Egypt. Every time there's an incident, a church burned or attacked, nothing happens about it. No one is charged. No one is arrested. This is not fair. Someone has to pay for what they have done to the churches. And yet, it is not our duty to repay. Paul teaches it is our duty and responsibility to faithfully endure, as the Thessalonians did, chapter 1, verse 4. It is to continue to entrust ourselves to the coming king who will be revealed from heaven as the just judge and who will render righteous retribution to all who have afflicted God's people. But we know that due to our fallen sinful nature, we don't always do this well, do we? But the good news, listen carefully, is that Jesus, in the face of great injustice, did this for us. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile it in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's our salvation. And so because of this, the Apostle Paul exhorts in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, as he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, which is what Paul has in mind here too. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
And so the Apostle Paul assures the Thessalonians that God is just and that he will pay back their evildoers exactly what they deserve. So leave vengeance to God. So look at verse 8. Notice that Jesus' payback consists of this vengeance. Jesus, when he returns, will inflict vengeance. That is, when he returns, he will mete out justice on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. For those who persecute the church and for all unbelievers in general, Paul says Christ's second coming will be the worst day conceivable. Christ will be revealed from heaven as the avenger. We like the movie The Avengers, right? This is the ultimate avenger right here. Jesus will inflict perfect justice Punishment on those who persecute the church, on all unbelievers in general, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will receive perfect justice. Paul says on this day, he will vindicate the persecuted from the wrongs done to them. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Comfort of Christ's Just Judgment, Part 1. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time.